right everyone welcome back to 80s high the podcast that sneaks into the mansion of your brain rummages around prodding your nostalgia centers knocking over vials of dopamine and making you squirm with joy like a green tentacle with a can of pepsi i'm your host chris (laughs) and i'm ben and this is 80s high how's it going ben I'm good, and I hope when you go into your next mansion, you pick the two of us to go along with you. Oh, man. Uh, Can you imagine? <laughs> it's like the lineup in gym class where they're picking the team, and you're the kid right. that never gets picked. Oh, yeah. Probably because I'm closest to surfer Jeff, and nobody <laughs> nobody wants to pick me. He has one use. Nobody, Jeff has one needs... special power, which we'll talk I about. I do want to find out what that is. Oh, um, man. I'm good. I'm good. I got, you know, I had a little bit of a squirrel moment researching this game okay uh, I, I pulled up today's topic on the barcade and as oh, you know yeah. the barcade is organized alphabetically and i saw a classic on there on nes that i'd never played through before and i had to give it a shot uh and that was metroid the original metroid oh okay and you know so many people talk about uh metroidvania which are games that are based on both metroid and castlevania mm-hmm. side scrolling lots of uh, story and context and um, it's a great game. It's very hard, but it's so good. And it's just, it's such a neat uh, switch from video games at the time, which have been generally silly, simple side scrollers, lighthearted, right. very friendly and fun. And this is like very moody and atmospheric and dark and you're sort of dungeon plummeting down. It's such a cool game, though. I, I really was enjoying it. I, I want to get back in and try and finish it. Metroid's oh, awesome. That's awesome. You know, I never actually played the Metroid games. So that's like a huge blind spot in my growing up playing all these systems. Me too. I mean, much older, I, I had played all the way through Metroid Prime, which I loved, and that was awesome. But that was the only Metroid game I had really given a fair shake to. So mm. it was really cool back to go back to the OG and experience it. It was great. Yeah, for sure. What's the chat in your corner of homeroom today? Are you picking gum off the bottom of the desk or what's going on? Yeah, well, a couple of things came to mind to share with our listeners and with you, Ben. So Fabulous. Right now, Chris and Class of 80s High have been voting daily on the Rock right, and Roll good. Hall of Fame fan vote for Why? our one, our only... Who needs to get in there? Friend of the show, Pat Benatar. Friend of the show. She's in the top five. In fact, she's number three on the list. And voting goes through April 29th. So listeners, we highly encourage you to go to that page. You can vote for more than one. I think you can vote for up to three. Just vote for Pat. Don't get those other people in there. Forget about the other people. This is our life's mission of this podcast. We will have succeeded if we get (laughs) Pat Benatar into the rock and roll. Hall of Fame, or should I say help? I mean, we're not going to do it personally, but if we can help nudge her in there as is her right to be there in that pantheon of amazing rock stars, how satisfying would that be? So April 29th, 2022, keep rocking that vote. Let's get Pat in there. And we'll find out next month. Mm. Uh, in May, I guess, whenever you're listening to the podcast. This could be years from now. I was going to say, well, but hopefully a couple episodes from now for us. Oh. Well, no. Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait. Come on. My other big topic I wanted to mention Ooh. is friend of the show, 
guest host, Allison Dixon, has launched yes. her own podcast. Excellent. Way to go, Allison. No surprise. Called Ding Dong Darkness Time. So <laughs> it's a great title. It's a lot of fun. She explores her fascination with the weird, the morbid, and the macabre across a range of topics with a cast of recurring co-hosts, and I'm in the majority of the first season. So if you can't get enough of this obnoxious voice, head on over to wherever you get your podcast for (laughs) Ding Dong Darkness Time and check it out. There's going to be seven episodes in the first season. About half of those have dropped already. And the overarching theme of this season is like darkness in the arts, whether it's like music or sculpture, dance, architecture, all sorts of fun topics. And the inspiration for this season was actually an episode of 80s High. Did I tell you that, Ben? Mm, I didn't know. I don't know. Uh, Hold on. If it's Ding Dong Darkness, then it must have been, uh, it's got to be Fraggle Rock. That's what inspired her to do Ding Dong Darkness. Nailed it. The darker so dark side of Jim Henson's Fraggle Right. Rock. Dark Crystal. Exactly. <laughs> now it was our episode on Unsolved Mysteries. When we talk oh, about that yeah. horrifying theme song, and one of the aspects that makes it terrifying is the use of this thing called the Devil's Interval. And that was a seed oh, yeah. of thought for Allison. And so the first episode of the podcast is about the Devil's Interval. Our show is an inspiration for that, which is pretty fun. It's awesome. Exactly. Well, listen, I really hope there's some tentacle chow on the menu today. <laughs> I hope that Razor's band is playing after school. But Ben, there's only one way we're going to find out. Well, and careful. Don't let anything near the microwave. That is very fair. <laughs> <laughs> Keep your class pads safe. Oh, uh, please. Wait, we're going to have to hear those uh, morning announcements. Let's get to it. Attention, 80s high. Bernard Benulli here to share today's homeroom announcements. It would behoove you to follow 80s High Podcast on Instagram and Twitter. Today's lunch will be green and purple calamari. Yum! All the cool kids like me are joining the Class of 80s High email list, which is a way for people to suggest show topics, send corrections on stuff we got wrong in episodes, and share radio repair tips, which we might read on the show. Email 80shighpodcast at gmail.com to join. That's 80S. Will Sandy Pants please report to Dr. Fred's office? Mr. Ed's hamster is still missing. If found, please return to his classroom. Thank you and have a maniacal day. Go Mogwise! Okay, well, Ben, during those announcements, it just so happens I found this key in the chandelier. So, what I'd like to do is recruit you to my team. And let's take this key to the next room where history class is taking place to see if we can unlock the secrets of how this game came to be. What do you say? I love it. I found shoes and I found wheels. If I can figure out how to put them together, I'll roller skate down there with you. (laughs) It'd be perfect. The music was awesome. Oh. The music was fantastic. So we are talking today about Maniac Mansion. What is Maniac Mansion? It is a graphic adventure video game developed and published by Lucasfilm Games. The game follows teenage protagonist Dave as he attempts to rescue his girlfriend Sandy from a mad scientist whose mind is being controlled by a sentient meteor, of course, that crash landed in the backyard of this mansion. So players have to guide Dave and two of his six playable friends through the mansion while solving puzzles and avoiding dangers. The way you play the game is through a point-and-click interface. 
And you interact with the world by matching these action verbs with items around you. The gameplay is nonlinear, and in order to beat the game, you have to do it in different ways based on the characters you have chosen. Maniac Mansion has been recognized as a defining adventure game of the 80s and 90s and became a cult classic, eventually leading to a sequel, Day of the Tentacle. So that's the overview. Ben, what do you know about the creation, the sort of seed of this game coming to be? Well, I want to tiptoe into it because usually it's, okay. it's the chooser who leads history class, and I don't want to. I don't want to scoop you. I don't want to sweep you. Ah, oh, you're on scooping all this my stuff. story, man. I don't want to scoop and sweep you. No, what you got? Uh, but, what you got? But this dates back to '85. We're right smack mm-hmm. in the '80s, which is great for us because you and I usually tend to accidentally pick topics in 1989. That's right. Always seems to be happening. So we're right in the middle, and this is uh, this is conceived by Ron Gilbert and Gary Winnick, who were both. At Lucas, uh, what's the full name? It's before LucasArts. It's Lucasfilm It's Lucasfilm Games. Lucasfilm Games, Which later becomes LucasArts. So, like, we might use them interchangeably. Same thing. Yeah, and these two guys sort of uh, struck it off at work. They kind of hit it off. They were, like, good buddies. They had very similar senses of humors. But how how I'll hand the mic back to you is what they really loved together. Yes. Were horror movies and B-film cliches. Oh, my goodness. Lover of these cheesy movies and films, which two of them being fairly instrumental in the creation of this game. Oh, yeah. So real quick, Ron Gilbert, he's really the programmer of the game. He's the one that eventually creates the language slash game engine. Gary is the artist and animator. And so those are their specialized roles, but both of them are instrumental in writing and designing the game, making it all come together. So it's really this duo of Ron and Gary that bring this thing into being. And to go back to those cheesy films, there were two that were really inspirational. One of them was Creepshow. Did you see this one, Ben? Yeah, which I haven't even watched Creepshow myself because I'm too scared. Okay. It's got to be crazy. It is a meteor lands on a farm and starts corrupting the farmer. Well, this sounds extremely familiar. Played by Stephen King. Really? Wild. Uh, wait a minute. Does that mean that Maximum Overdrive and Creepshow are <gasps> a shared universe? Because right, the meteor goes yes. by and that's what turns all the machines on? Yes, it's like an asteroid passing by that Yeah, right. that makes all the... Oh my gosh. So Creepshow is the sequel shared to Maximum Overdrive where universe. it finally crashes. Wow. <laughs> and this is what happens. The connection is there. That's amazing. It's there. It's and the be. other one is Little Shop of Horrors, which there's a man-eating oh, plant, course. obviously, Audrey 2, which you see a very similar plant in this game. Yeah, but I mean, even as you see this game and play, you can see influence from all sorts of like horror film. I mean, it, it's in a mansion, kids yep. are running around. In yep. the PC version, there's blood on the walls, there's yep. chainsaws. Like, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of nods to a lot of 70s and 80s horror films. A mad scientist doing crazy experiments. Yeah, yes. exactly. Absolutely. Exactly. So there's a lot of these influences that get packed in. But what they found is they had these disparate ideas. They're like, okay, we like this idea of a haunted mansion. We like this idea of this weird yeah. family living there. We like the idea of this group of kids going inside. But there's no game. Well, somewhere around this time, Lucasfilm Games relocates. Where do they relocate to? Oh, my God. I was so jealous. 
They sent him out to Skywalker Ranch to work on this game. Come How on cool now. cool is that? How can That's you not insane. be amazingly inspired by this just sprawling so property? Cool. Skywalker Ranch. How do you tell a friend that you're going to go work at Skywalker Ranch without just giggling like a child? Like, hee hee hee. I don't think you can. It's impossible. It's so cool. I dare say impossible. It's so good. And what happens is being here, this is still the conception period of the game, and being here, they sort of look at this main house as a model for the mansion in the game. With one notable thing being the library with a spiral staircase, which is a room that shows up in Maniac Mansion. Yeah, right. So they start to map out the mansion. They're basically drawing it on paper. But again, they still don't have everything until... Ron Gilbert sees his cousin playing Sierra Online's King's Quest. Yeah, he's like visiting him for a holiday and yep. just like, what's this game you're playing? Show me, uh, show me what you got going on. And King's Quest is this text adventure with graphics and animation. So Sierra had kind of taken the text adventure that had existed, but like, oh, we're going to actually put graphics and animation with it to make it more of a like visual experience. Gilbert's like, this is what Maniac Mansion needs yeah. to be. But... There's one thing he cannot stand about these kind of text adventures, and that is the text parsers. Ben, have you ever played a text-based adventure game? No, I haven't. The closest I can get to it is uh, when in Big. Yes! <laughs> when Tom Hanks is playing, yes. like, he's got to kill the Ice King or whatever. That's, that's the most I've ever seen it. I had the same thing. I'm so glad you mentioned that. The Cavern <laughs> of the Evil Wizard, when young Josh oh, is playing it. Was, it. Right. And he yeah. can't think of the right thing to type to beat the game and the wizard freezes him forever. (laughs) Well, that's the frustration about these games is that you had to type the exact words. Otherwise, the game was like, I don't know what you're talking about. I can't do that. Playing those was so mind-bogglingly frustrating. You would just lose your mind. Gilbert's like, I can see it. Why can't I just click on it? He's also like, I'm not a good speller. I can't type fast. How can I remove this element from these games and make them better? Right. And he was also saying, so there was that great like 45 minute presentation he gave at some conference in Germany a decade ago. Like it was a moratorium on Maniac Mansion. And he's saying- Postmortem, postmortem. Postmortem, sorry, not a moratorium. (laughs) Please continue to play the game. It's not a moratorium. stop playing the game. Stop playing. No, and and he was like, it drove him nuts about the text games where like, for example, he sees a bush. So he types in like, move bush. And the game like doesn't recognize bush. Okay, move shrub. And it doesn't Mm -hmm. know what shrub. It's like, it drives me nuts, the vocabulary that I know what that thing is and I want to be able to interact with it. But because I don't know what the game author chose to call this and type out, I can't do anything. It's very frustrating. I lose my mind. You almost had to get into the mind of the developer, whoever that was. Right. Very maddening to play those kinds of games. Oh, God. Yeah. So what Ron Gilbert says is, I'm going to do it differently. In fact, I'm going to create my own scripting language, which ends up becoming what is the acronym SCUM. Oh, you can't shh. Did you just beep that out? Was that censored on the show? Did you have to beep that? Well, thankfully, Nintendo does not produce this podcast, so we right, can say Right, because then it. we'd be in trouble. Oh, oh, we'll, we'll get to that, folks. So oh, SCUM stands for Script Creation Utility for Maniac Mansion. And- I don't understand this stuff fully, but what I do understand is that it falls somewhere between a game engine and a programming language. And what it allows is for the designer to create locations, items, and dialogue sequences without writing code in the language in which the game source code ends up. So it's just this way that they can kind of put all these objects together and identify things. And games based off the Scum engine, which there are more, feature this verb object design. So if the player 
can connect an item in their inventory with something in the world correctly, then it creates this like action sequence. You've solved the puzzle. And what they end up doing is, to Ben's point, like move bush, open bush, look in bush, like you're trying to figure out what to do. Well, rather than just come up with your own verbs, they said, we're going to make a preset of verbs Mm -hmm. on the screen that you use to interact in the world to really simplify it. And that's how the point and click works. So if you want to pull up mat, you click pull up and then you hover over to the mat, you pull it up and oh, there's a key underneath. There's the key. Now I get the mansion. Yeah. Because of course, everybody puts their key under the mat. Don't do that, folks. Don't do it. They all learned it from Maniac Mansion. Like, that is a very great true. idea. I should have had my key there. And look, if you're someone who is in programming, if you're in computer science, uh, you know, you came to the wrong show. You know, we've done our best. We tried <laughs> We tried to read and understand really what this scum thing was. Yeah. Uh, I think Chris has done a valiant job trying to explain the benefits of the scum system. But if you're wanting something more, more deep, we would like to recommend you to Google and go read up more on how specific this gets. So it really does become this engine or model by which they can create a lot of these similar types of games. So with all of those pieces in place, they finally had this game and they get to work and they're crunching it together. Another thing that made these guys so successful at it, Skywalker Ranch, is they said one of the biggest attributes to them getting to make this game was that Lucasfilm basically left them alone. Mm -hmm. They said, go make this game. They're like, we're on it and we'll check in with you in like two years or a year and a half. This message really goes all goes out to all you middle managers out there. You know, take a step back. You know, let them breathe. Leave that room for creativity, experimentation, failure. They'll get there eventually. But, you know, this just goes to show this is one of the most popular games and started so many games from it in the 80s. And it was, a lot of it had to do with hands-off management and putting the right people on the project. Yeah, the fact that they were able to kind of just trial and error, make this game the way they wanted to and I think pretty much got everything they wanted, speaks volumes to not limiting the creative process and what can come from that, which is great. Exactly. So everything kind of comes together then with this final product. And what do we get? Well, first off, we have those seven playable characters. You have Dave, that main protagonist. Again, he's the college student dating Sandy. She's kidnapped. He has to assemble his team. Dave is the required character. You cannot unselect Dave. And Dave is usually designed on or based after one of the two creators. It's, I think it's loosely on Gilbert. Okay, I can't remember. I, I remember hearing that, but I didn't remember which one I don't know it was. who's who, but I think he's loosely based on Gilbert. And then you have other characters that you can choose two from. You can mix and match any way you want. And again, depending on which characters you choose, gives you certain ending options to beat the game. Yeah. So Michael is an award-winning photographer. Wendy is an aspiring novelist. And Wendy was actually based on a Lucasfilm employee. Yes. Sid is an aspiring musician trying to start his own new wave band. Bernard is president of the physics club. He's this kind of nerdy guy. He can fix electronics, but he's also kind of a scaredy cat. And keep an eye on Bernard because Bernard is going to come back later on. He is indeed an MVP who, who makes a, a pretty big splash in a future game for sure. Razor is the lead singer of the punk band Razor and the Scumettes. And Razor is based on the other creators, Winix, his girlfriend, Ray. And I just noticed this and I didn't read about it, but their name is the Scumettes. Is that a little nod to the engine scum? It's gotta be. It's gotta be based on the engine. And then, of course, we have Jeff. 
Surfer dude. Oh, Jeff. Jeff is just that good friend you have who doesn't have a lot of talents. He's just a chill, laid-back guy. But he, he can do one thing. He can do one thing in the game, which is useful. Oh, yeah. I'll tell you what I had him do for me in the game. It was oh, great. great. It was very helpful. We're going to talk about yeah. that in chemistry class. He was exceptional. Class. Yes. I wanted to go quickly through some of the non-playable characters that you interact with. So, of course, you have yeah. Sandy. She's the cheerleader, girlfriend of Dave. She's kidnapped. You see cutscenes of her. And Dr. Fred and the Purple Tentacle, and they're going to put her in the, what's it called? The Brain-O-Matic? The There's a lot of omatics in this game. or basically they're going to suck her brains out. That's kind of the whole thing. Careful, He's gonna... careful. You can't say <laughs> suck brains out. Again, careful. Nintendo is not the distributor of this podcast. We're okay. <laughs> we are not held to their standards. Whew. Oh, thank goodness. So Dr. Fred is the game's main antagonist. He's the kidnapper. He's this retired physician with serious mad scientist vibes. But the reason he's kind of the antagonist really is he's being controlled by this meteor, the sentient rock oozing purple slime. And he's wanted by the meteor police for unspecified terrible acts of (laughs) violence, which is great. Uh, So good. Nurse Edna is Dr. Fred's wife. She mainly stays in her room, but you also encounter her pretty early in the kitchen, which is actually a freaky scene when you first play the game. Oh, yeah. Oh, Oh, my God. She kind of jumps out of nowhere. Yeah. If she catches you in the mansion, she will send you to the dungeon. Mm. And some of her dialogue hints at her being a little bit of a dirty birdie. She's a oh little, my gosh. Uh, yeah. yeah. A little dirty mind. That you got to watch out for Nurse Edna. Then we have their son, Weird Ed. He resents the meteor and he's looking for a way to defeat it. Yeah. He has a pet hamster that he loves. And he's initially hostile to Dave's party, but you can make friends with him and he won't put you in the dungeon. You have dead cousin Ted, who's essentially a mummified corpse that you find in the shower of one of the rooms upstairs. Yeah, right. You have two tentacles. There's the green tentacle, which you encounter first. Oh my God, first. the tentacles. It's a sentient tentacle. And basically you have to feed him some food in order to get past him. And then if you're playing a couple of the characters, uh, you can help him start his own rock band. Right. The purple tentacle is basically evil. He's Dr. Fred's henchman. And he's mostly guarding the entrance to the secret lab. If you do certain things in the game, Dr. Fred will send the purple tentacle to investigate, and he can also send you to the dungeon. And lastly, just a couple that you might encounter. There's the meteor police, where in some of the endings, they can show up and capture or arrest the meteor. And then also through the television, you come across a character named Mark Atier, which with a couple of the characters you can use to publish something, books or music. Uh, which again, for certain characters, will allow particular endings. So those are the main characters that you either play as or run into. The features of this game, as I mentioned, it's the point-and-click interface where you're interacting with the environment using those action verb sets like look, use, open, pull, push, Mm -hmm, read, give. mm -hmm. At any time, you can switch between any of the characters. So you can really use that to your benefit uh, for teamwork to help solve certain puzzles and access particular rooms of the mansion. Mm-hmm. Each character has their own inventory that can be swapped when characters are in the same room. Which we're gonna have to we're gonna get into inventory management in For chemistry. Sure. There's so many games, even modern games, where inventory management Ugh. such a hassle, man. Such a hassle. The game also utilizes cutscenes to further the storytelling and also showcase the Edison family more because you don't interact with them too much, but you get to learn more about them and what's going on in the house through these cutscenes. I didn't realize this. Ron Gilbert invented the phrase cutscenes when developing this game. So when you hear the term cutscenes, it started here with Gilbert, with Maniac Mansion, trying to tell the story as you play the game. Oh, yes. 
Uh, as mentioned, the game features many endings, some winning endings, like you can arrest the meteor, do some other things that we'll talk about. Others are not winning endings, which I think Ben had a few. A, a lot of familiarity <laughs> Based with. Based on screenshots you sent me, I think you've had a oh lot of fami- familiarity with some of these. Yep. And we'll talk about those in chemistry. The tone of the game was decidedly is more adult, right? There's some adult elements oh, to this for game sure. for sure. Yeah, it's got yeah. some black comedy to it, some surreal violence, and in kind of LucasArts tradition, offbeat humor and some slapstick. The game comes out for the Commodore 64 in the Apple II in 1987. October, great month. October, Halloween, it's a great time. Oh, it's perfect. In the following couple of years, the game gets ported to MS-DOS, the Amiga, the Atari ST, and finally in 1990, it ports over to the Nintendo Entertainment System. Put a pin in it. We're going to come back to that real quick. I just have a Put few a more things. Oh, we boy. keep hinting at this. We're going to get to it super quick. So Maniac Mansion received highly positive reviews from critics, even though Gilbert said it wasn't really a huge hit commercially, but it was really praised for its humor the cinematic storytelling, the cutscenes that impart information and urgency, the graphics, surprisingly, uh, <laughs> were yeah. a big key feature at the time, yeah. and the level of detail that they had in the game, as well as having distinctive characters with individual personalities. So the game comes out, like I said, not a huge commercial success, but people really like it. And the people who play it seem to really love mm-hmm. what's going on here. Oh, yeah. It's getting ported to these other systems including Nintendo Entertainment System. Oh, man. And Ben, you turned me on to an article, I think, in Wired about yeah, yeah. this whole process of porting to Nintendo. So let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So there, there are two separate versions of the game developed for the Nintendo Entertainment System. The first port is handled and published by Jellico, which is mm-hmm. only in Japan. And that released on June 23rd, 1988. And what's interesting, first of all, before we get into all like the legalese with Nintendo, there's a lot of really marked differences between what came out on the Commodore 64 and the Apple II and then what happens on consoles. Yeah. So number one, like the animation style changes a lot. The characters are a lot cuter is the best way I can do it. Like they're, they're little, they're cute, they're brighter. The biggest change are the rooms. So now the rooms... On the Commodore 64 version, would scroll. You'd walk into a room and you'd have to keep walking and keep walking and the screw would load. Right. Now you walk in and it's just one solid room. I'd say for me, the other biggest difference was the music. Yeah. I'm jumping a little head to chemistry, but I played most of it, the PC version, and it's dead silent. Mm-hmm. But they uh, wrote music for uh, the console version. Yeah, so Jalico had commissioned real-time associates to make the background music. And the idea was that video games at the time had to have wall-to-wall music. And so each character has their own theme song. Yeah. Which I will say, we'll talk about chemistry, but I ended up turning it off because I felt the music constantly was a little distracting from the mm-hmm. game itself. Mm-hmm. But anyway, yeah, that, that, that was a huge difference. So Jellico comes out later, it takes them a while actually, almost another two years, September 1990, they released the American version for the Nintendo Entertainment System. Yep. And it's a little closer to what the original game was on the Commodore 64 than like what the the Japanese version was. I would say there's another big difference that would have driven me nuts as well. Okay. There's no longer a save feature. It's a password feature that is 100 characters long. So that's on the Japanese version. In the Japanese version. Thank you. Yeah, the US version has a save feature. I would have lost my mind if you had to enter a 100-character password. That is nuts. 
to publish with Nintendo, it's a great opportunity, right? Nintendo, it's a household name by now, huge distribution opportunity. Yeah. So you're like, all right, I want to go in league with this giant corporation and get my game out. Well, then you have to play by their rules. Yeah, and, and really this version, they need to adapt it to a younger audience. So some of the stuff, Ben, you've already mentioned about the like cuter, brighter graphics are really to make it more appealing to younger people, but... That's not all. <laughs> right. So they think, you know, well, this is Nintendo, so they're going to have standards. So let's go ahead and find the things in the game that aren't going to work for Nintendo. And they really uh, they really just put out the word kill in the beginning. Like, we can't say the word kill. We got to watch out for kill. They said that's the worst word you can say. That's the worst word you can say. You can actually show people being killed. That's right. fine. You can't use the word. And, and I love that. So there's this great article about someone who was at Lucasfilm and was in charge of the port, just transferring this all over. And he writes a great review of how it all went down. But one of the things he says that just drove him nuts in this process is you look at Nintendo's stable of big games, you've got Mario with no motivation, running through the kingdom, killing hundreds of Goombas and turtles and jumping and killing on things. You've got Zelda stabbing monsters with a sword, shooting with a, with a bow and an arrow. Uh, so much violence. But... Um, mm-hmm. When it comes down to it, there's a lot of words that are way worse than actually killing things uh, yes. in Nintendo's world. And that caused a lot of work for the team. So they send over a list, a huge list to Nintendo of basically every line of text and dialogue and pictures of every single room. And how's that list go down at Nintendo? It's like that thing you write and... English class and the teacher gives it back to you. It's just dipped in red ink with all oh my of the God. errors and notes and circles and X's. And yeah, there's a lot going on there for sure. Right out of the start gate when the kids are scared to go into the house, Dave turns around and says, don't be a shithead in the PC version. But they changed that to don't be a tuna head. On the shower, there's an important clue that says, for a good time, call Edna. And they had to get rid of that. Yeah. You had to clean all the blood off the walls, all the gore. You couldn't say... Getting your pretty brain sucked out. That's what right? Dr. Fred says to Sandy in one of the first cutscenes. They couldn't say that. And it's not all language. You know, in Dead Cousin Ted's room, he's got a poster of like a female mummy fully wrapped, sitting in a suggestive position. It's like a swimsuit calendar, but it's a mummy. Yeah. And so they had to cut that out. Yep. There's a statue that's sort of uh, Michelangelo inspired. Like, And if you if you read the label as the character on the statue, it's in French. And if you, I did have to Google this. I looked up what the French translation was, and it says it belongs to the Louvre. If you find it, return to the Louvre. Mm. It's just a classic-looking statue, but it's a nude statue. Yeah. And uh, Nintendo said you got to pull that out. Can't have classic art and sculpture in the game. Yeah. That's very that could destroy kids' brains. But I love the last one in the credits. The thing that had to get removed from the credits. Oh my goodness. So do you remember exactly how it was written? Yeah, NES scum. And Nintendo was like, what do you mean, scum? Like, they didn't even understand that that was the name of the scripting language and engine behind right. the game. And they're like, what would people think if they saw Nintendo scum? So they had to take that out, right? It's completely gone? It's totally gone. They don't even credit the engine that the game is built on in it, that they <sighs> worked so hard to write and program and invent. Nintendo. I will say this other stuff. There was some sexually suggestive dialogue from Nurse Edna. Nurse Edna, spicy. Yeah, locking boys in a dungeon, saying I should have tidied to my bed, cutie. Right. If she locks a girl in the dungeon, she's like, you're lucky you aren't a boy. Like, that's a oh, little, yeah. <laughs> that's a she's little a, risque. She's a thirsty nurse. Paging Nurse Thirsty. My goodness. Nurse Thirsty. 
You can call her from one of the phones in the library and it will distract her so another character can get into her room. Right. In the original version, she's like, is this a prank call? There's no heavy breathing. Let me show you how to do it. Like, just a just <laughs> right thirsty, feisty nurse text Anna. from her. Oh. So obviously that is all gone. Yeah. So that's kind of what they did in order to port this over to the Nintendo entertainment oh, system. Gosh. Like you said, Ben, like this is a huge distribution opportunity. So frustrating as it was, they kind of just grit their teeth through it all and try to find a way to make it work because it's a good opportunity. Well, and this is what I was trying to find. Was it worth it? Could you find any sales numbers on Commodore 64 versus Apple II versus Nintendo taking the spirit and character right out of this game's soul? Was it worth it? I mean, all I can say is anecdotally, the version I played as a kid was the Nintendo version. And I love the game because part of it is if you don't know what's gone, you don't know what's gone. That's true. And these are when the day is done, these are not huge game changing things. They're just all background. It's kind of like when you've seen a movie on television your entire life. And then you finally see the real movie and you're like, wait, there's another scene here. Oh, they said that. You can still enjoy the thing, but when you see the full version, you realize, oh, I missed a couple things. That's kind of cool. It's like if you've only ever seen Snakes on a Plane on television, and then you rent the movie, and you realize that Samuel L. Jackson doesn't yell, I've had it with these monkey fighting snakes on this Monday through Friday plane. That's not the original dialogue? What? What? The heck you say. (laughs) Exactly. Well, let's talk a little bit more about our experiences with the game. Ben, I heard we have a guest lecturer in chemistry class today. I'm pretty sure it's Dr. Fred. And I was going to say. I think he's going to pick us for his experiment, not to suck our brains out, but rather to extract our memories and experiences with this game. <laughs> if anybody can do it, Dr. Fred can do it. Or a meteor who is puppeteering Dr. Fred. Indeed. Hook me up, baby. Hook me up. <laughs> All right, so we are in chemistry class. Our brains have been properly massaged. What's the right word? Uh, Gently prodded and poked. Exactly. We're very malleable at the moment. We could be influenced. It's true. Stuff is flowing. We're ready. So I wanted to kick off and talk a little bit about our experiences playing these adventure games, whether they're the old text-based versions or these point-and-click. So, Ben, I I believe you did not play Maniac Mansion before we talked about it on the show. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. No, I had never played it. But I believe you've played some other text-based or point-and-click adventure games. Yeah, I really caught on to the wave that came after Maniac Mansion. Sort of because of what Maniac Mansion was, is how I got involved in LucasArts. So, and really the two main ones, I played a lot of Sam and Max when I was a kid. For those of you who don't know that, it's sort of a detective comedy put up by LucasArts. Was it the first one, Sam and Max Hit the Road? Hit the road. Exactly. Yes, 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 yes. You know, you've got like a classically trained, serious, good at his job dog with a fedora and mm-hmm. his totally maniacal, naked, cartoonish white rabbit who is out for blood and violence. But they they play off each other really well. And it's another point and click adventure. And it's yep. great. It's fantastic. And honestly, it's I guess it's about eight years after this game first came out. But honestly, one of my favorite games of my entire life uh, was a LucasArts point-and-click game called The Dig. Yeah. Which is such an amazing video game. It's Lucas and Spielberg come together to make this game happen. 
But your three, your three astronauts who go to explore an asteroid in Earth's orbit, you find out it's a teleporter, kind of a ship, a shuttle. And you go to this al- this dead alien planet, and the game is to try and figure out what happened to the planet. Mm. But you can just see all the mechanics from Maniac Mansion. Yeah, in the dig, there's cutscenes. You've got your inventory. Does this work with this thing? You're going to different locations. All the structures there. It was cool to see that in Maniac Mansion come back. Absolutely. I mean, there's two big names back in this day. There's Lucasfilm Games, you know, soon to become LucasArts, and you have Sierra Online. Yeah. And those were two of the biggest influences for me, but I wanted to go all the way back. So I actually messaged my dad because I was like, I remember this game he played on this old TRS-80 color computer. Wow. And it was this game called Lurkley Manor, which was this, you're going into this mansion and you're trying to escape, if I remember correctly. And basically you're going north, south, east, or west to move around and interact with these characters. Very, very basic Very basic game. But that's one of my earliest memories of a game where you actually input a command to like move around and explore a place. Text adventure. Text adventure. Very, very early days of that. Oh, wow. I also remember my friend Corey. I'd go over and visit his house, probably like fourth or fifth grade. And he was showing me this game called Hugo's House of Horrors. And it's another one of these like graphic text based where you're typing in open cabinet, you know, those kinds of things. And I remember he showed me those games. He showed me the first two Space Quest games. I don't know if oh, you remember wow. Space Quest. So those were some really early ones where I was like, wow, this is a completely different type of gameplay than I got Whoa. off of my Nintendo. It was just something way different. You know, growing up from there, I played Space Quest games. I think pretty much all of them. One of the Police Quests, Maniac Mansion, of course, Leisure Suit Larry, most leisure of the game. suit Larry. As a kid, oh I was God, playing I... Leisure Yo, Suit Larry. That explains so much. I mean, talk oh about God. playing something as a kid. You were like, "This is something I shouldn't be playing." I should but not be playing. I'm this allowed right now. to. <laughs> oh uh, Secret God. of Monkey Island was a game I loved, which is oh, one sure. that Gilbert yeah. goes on to uh, make after Maniac Mansion. And then later days, it's Day of the Tentacle, Sam and Max Hit the Road. Freddy Farkas Frontier Pharmacist was another one of my whoa, favorites. Whoa, whoa. It's a lot of alliteration. I don't want to like spoil math or anything like that, you, but, but since you are, some might say, with that laundry list, an aficionado of text yes. and click adventures, do you have a, a sweetheart among them? Is there a favorite mm. of those? For anybody who wants to, you know, I really want to stick my teeth into an adventure. What, what's the right one to get into? Great question. Man, it's really hard to say because the Space Quest games I like, they're, they're like fun sci-fi. And there was just something like you felt like you're in your own episode of Star Wars or Star Trek yeah. and you're going to play this game, which is really cool. Freddy Farkas is actually a really good game. It's set really? like Old okay. West and you're a pharmacist. Like there's just something oh fun God. about I had this basic job in this interesting time period, but then I have to rise to the occasion and do gunfighting and solve this big mystery that's going on in the town and stuff like that. I th- uh, I'm going to have to say Day of the Tentacle maybe is the oh, standout wow. on the list. Okay. It's, this is a really hard list to choose from. Day of the Tentacle. But Day of the Tentacle is such a good game. All right. That's good. That's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm glad to hear that because after doing all this, I played 30 minutes of Day of the Tentacle. I downloaded it on uh, Xbox Games Pass. Okay. So I've started it and I want to I want to go farther into it. Let's talk more about your experience with it. Yes. When we okay. get to contemporary culture. I want your initial impressions of the game. So, mm, mm, mm. so real quick. Ben didn't play Maniac Mansion. I did. We put out to the class of 80s high on social Thank media. Thank you. Good. Yeah. Have you played Maniac Mansion? And the results came back. It's about a quarter of our respondents said yes. Three quarters said no. 
huh, not a huge following for having played Maniac Mansion. Well, and that speaks to, again, in this conference that Gilbert spoke at, he used the phrase cult classic. Yes. He identified his game as a cult classic. And I think that is when you look at these things, I don't know, Rocky Horror Picture Show, Little Shop of Horrors. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if there was a type of action figure in the 80s, maybe Silverhawks. That was right. a little more underplayed. You know, it is, it is for those who find it and got into it, loved it. Awesome sense of humor, cool design. But it, this is not a big tentpole AAA kind of thing going on. It's kind of like one of the most beloved games for Super Nintendo is Earthbound, and it's definitely yeah. a cult classic. Not a lot of people played it, but those who do fell in love with it for being such an amazing game. And yeah, I think this right. is definitely in that same kind of wheelhouse. So memories playing this game. I want to talk a little bit about my memories playing yeah, it, and then please. I want to get to your experience with it. So oh, man. my memories of playing this game, again, all on the Nintendo. I never played the computer versions of it. And I just remember playing it with my friends a ton, going through the different characters, doing the different combinations, exploring the house, trying to figure out what's going on. Some of the most gripping moments, like when you're being chased by Nurse Edna, and you have to try to outrun her so she doesn't capture you. Or you have one of your characters in the mansion and suddenly the doorbell rings and Weird Ed is going to come down the stairs. And what's fun about this game is, like, if you're in his path, he will encounter you. And that was something very new uh, yeah, right, in a game exactly. like this where the environment changed based on some scripted event. That wasn't really something you experienced a lot in games before. And so this was really new and exciting and fun. And just the enjoyment of finally connecting something together and, like, oh, that's what you have to do. And you solve that problem. There's just something so satisfying about doing that without having to look at a cheat book or a hint guide or Mm. something like that. You just, through trial and error and intuition, you worked it out with your friends. There was something just very satisfying about that. Ben, what were your thoughts on the game? Well, and I think right there, you're you're, you're onto something very critical of like, solve it with your friends. Mm. This definitely takes you back to a time where, again, you couldn't like go Google answers on the internet. Right. The game was new. It was fresh. There wasn't a lot written out there. I know you had some game strategy guides back in the day. I don't know if there was a Maniac Mansion strategy guide. Well, I looked at the box art or the instruction booklet, and you could mail in for seven ninety five to get a hint book. So you oh, can mail really? in eight oh, bucks. You could get yourself a hint book. Yeah. This just takes you back to a time where, like, if you had the game, either you were all going to a friend's house and playing it together, and you would yeah. all collaborate right there. To say like, oh, dude, click that. Or no, 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 remember, you're supposed to go back here. Take Or try this. This could be fun. Or my fourth cousin, I heard this guy <laughs> say he tried this and this would work. Right. And so playing it in a silo, like I did over the last couple of weeks, is very challenging if you don't go look at hints. And I can see where that's really a lot of the fun is collaborating with your friends. And if you're not doing it live... Um, you're all playing it at home separately. It's sort of the thing you come together on the playground or during lunch and you're like, oh, guys, okay, I figured out yada, yada, yada. And this is before anyone had invented that phrase, spoiler alert. So no one right. cared. <laughs> and, and you would just talk each other through the game. Yeah. And uh, I could see that's super fun. I'd see that would be a big part of the game. It would be great. Yeah, absolutely. Part of the challenges of this game and games of this genre is that some of the games are intuitive and some of them are not. Some of them are just this weird combination of things that you can't really intuit or work backward to figure out. And I think that is some of the flaws and challenges in games like this. So we mentioned making your team. You can mix and match all variety of these friends of Dave's. What groups did you play with, Ben? 
Well, and that's unfortunate because so I, I tried playing the game before doing any research about the game, and I had no knowledge that different characters could affect the environment differently. I thought it was right. just all aesthetic. What do you want right. your people to look like? Yeah, yeah. Very early on, I tried to not choose Dave, and I was like, oh. Oh, you have to have Dave. Dave is very important <laughs> to the story. It's Dave's girlfriend you're shaving. That's right. I uh, I downloaded the game on Good Old Games. I use the Universal Hint System, UHS. I recommend to anybody is a great, like, if you need help on a game, but you don't want it to be super spoiled, it's very well written. That sort of leaves you breadcrumbs on the next thing you're supposed to do. And with those at my uh, in my tool bag, I tried every combination I could think of. Because here's the thing. And Chris had a really good laugh about this. After about a week of playing, only then did I realize you could press F5 to say you were a game. Oh, yeah. So when I had 30, 40 minutes of free time, I'd boot this up. I'd pick three characters and I'd play for 30, 40 minutes. I'd be like, all right, I guess I didn't finish it. And I'd quit and I'd lose all my progress. It took me a week of that. Well, and you also got trapped in the dungeon and didn't realize you can get out. Unless you have Jeff. And that's the purpose And I found for Jeff. That's the only good help I found for Jeff is I would just leave him in the dungeon to press the hidden rock to let other characters out of the dungeon. Let other characters out. What is he actually? What's his real thing? He does have one actual ability he can do. He can also fix the phone in the library. Oh! Yeah, so Bernard can do that, but Jeff doesn't have an ending, so he's not a character that you can actually used to affect the ending of the game, but he can fix the phone. So he can be a useful friend if you want to get past Nurse Edna. There's many ways you can do that, but that's one way is you call her on the phone and then she's distracted and you can sneak behind her, get up into the attic and do what you need to do up there. Well, there you go. Jeff can do something. Yeah. Is there a team that you like the most? Who you like going into that mansion with? You know, I like playing with all the different combinations I will say I played two different playthroughs getting back into this game for this episode. And the first one I did was with Wendy and I think it chose Michael, but I followed Wendy's path that time to beat the game. Oh, Wendy, of course, is the aspiring novelist. Mm-hmm. So her ending is that she redrafts the script that the meteor has written. Right. Oh, that's a good ending. And then you can mail it in and the meteor gets a contract. And that's how you can basically, the meteor becomes like famous. And that's how you can rescue Sandy and turn everyone back to normal. But it's like the most benevolent ending because the meteor ends up on like a talk show. He's being interviewed (laughs) about his writing and like the meteor's all happy and very excited. He's getting noticed. It's so good. Nobody dies. Nobody gets hurt. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. There's no arresting. There's no whatever. So there's that ending. So I did that the first time. And today, actually, I played again and I said, I'm going to play this game without ever getting captured. Oh, impressive. And I did it. It was so close. I almost got caught by Nurse Edna one time. It was so close. She's always coming for you. She's always coming for you. In a way that I forgot she could follow you, it freaked me out. What happened is I had Jeff call her on the phone and my other character snuck past her, did what he had to do and came back out into the hallway. And while I'm out in the hallway, she comes out of the room and chases me. And I'd never seen her do that go, before. Go, 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 go. So I freaked out and I ran down the hallway and got away from her. Thankfully. Oh, God. Yeah, it took me a lot of playthroughs to realize that you could actually outrun the family. I thought, like, yes. once they saw you, just stop playing. That's it. They've got oh, you. Yeah. Going to the door. I didn't realize you can start clicking through doors and run Yeah, you can, like, run away. And, and so if you good. go through a door, they don't follow you any further, which is something you probably just learn through playing the game. And yeah, you're like, trial oh, and error. I got away. I, I made it. Trial and error is the name of the game, is meaning. Oh, yes. Like, 
you know, the, the all, other part I would of, say all these games too. Like all yeah. these games are trial and error, but yeah, this one especially. It's something, again, that took me back to sort of, you know, we're talking about differences of games today and games then. Like there's no handholding. There are no maps. There are no waypoints. And I'm sure after you've played the game a couple times, there are clues. Yeah. Like you see like, oh, duh, that's there and that's telling me that. But besides that, you know, modern games today, something in the environment will highlight for a second or a bit of dialogue will make it very clear you're supposed to go do something. There's nothing this. And once you start to figure stuff out or you got the phone number for Edna or you've got the code for the steel doors, there's no word processing. There's no inventory to write that down. You needed a notepad and a pencil next to the computer. Very different time in gaming. Yeah, and one of the challenges of this game is that there are a lot of dead ends that you can get yourself into and you don't realize it and you can't beat the game. And so a few of them are, at one point in the game, Weird Ed gets a package in the mail and what you're supposed to do is intercept it. If you don't intercept it, you can't make friends with him. You also can't mail something in. And so effectively, there are certain characters that can't achieve the win at the end of the game if you let Weird Ed get his package. And I will throw that out. That's what broke the game for me. I made it about halfway through the game and I couldn't figure out what to do next. And so when I went and looked up the clues, it was the whole package thing. And I had yep. no, there was nothing in the game. I mean, there's a mailbox you see right out of the gate. Yep. Uh, you do find a manuscript and you find the commercial that these guys will publish anything if you mail it to them. Yep. So you're like, okay, I need to get this manuscript to these guys on TV. But connecting the dots of Ed and his package and getting stamps off the box and man, no way. I would have never figured that out on my own. Yeah, you have to put this envelope that you find in the microwave with a glass of water. What? So first off, you have to find the glass jar, fill it with water, put it in there and steam off, like steam open the letter so that you can reuse it. Use the stamps that fell off of Weird Ed's package, which that's the other thing. If you don't try to open that package, the stamps don't fall off. If you give it to Weird Ed, you don't get the stamps. So right, exactly. Another dead end. Also, apparently, I don't know if I've ever done this. You can kill the plant with developer fluid. And then you can't no. get up into the little like hatch access area where the telescope is. If it makes you feel any better, I never figured out how to make the plant grow at all. I knew we needed to grow because I could see the hatch. But I like, here's some Pepsi. Here's some water. Yeah. What do you want from me, plant? Yeah, it's crazy. You have to go scoop up water from the swimming pool, which is radioactive because you find out there's a nuclear oh God. reactor in the pool. Yeah, it's, a, it's a cooling tank. And so you use that water, you pour it on the plant and it mutates and it grows. And that's how you can climb up there. Well, here's what you don't want to do, Ben. Here's a way to end the game. If you try to steam off the envelope with the toxic water and you put it in the microwave, (laughs) you kill yourself. I was exceptional at killing myself. I found several ways to blow the house up. Yeah. How how can you blow the house up? Well, the two that that came on was... So first of all, figuring out how to... I could not figure out how to drain the pool. And it's ridiculously complicated to know that when you go see the mummy to use his gym equipment to get yeah. stronger. And then you can open a grate to get down to the pump house. It's, yeah. I would not have done that on my own. But anyway, if you drain the pool, that's the coolant tank for the reactor and don't refill the pool, then it overheats and explodes. Yes. If you're down in there with the reactor and you press a red button, yes. it explodes. Blow it up. And very early on, like right out of the gate, immediately, the first thing I ever did in the house was I touched the gargoyle. I knew I, when it said gargoyle, I was like, oh, that's special. That's going to open a secret something. So go in the secret door, go downstairs. I turn off the power and did not turn the power back on and the reactor explodes. Oh, yeah. Yep. That's another one. I mean, one. I was really good at blowing up the house. Is this like just me? Was this, did you go through this sort of experimentation with like blowing up the house? 
I feel like you blew up the house way more than I expected you oh to. Oh my God, so many times. I can't remember back to childhood to know if I did that a whole lot. I know all of those permutations happened. I just don't know if they happened in such rapid succession. You very quickly found Life a lot of those figured it out. literal dead ends. Another thing you can do, and this is only with certain characters, so Weird Ed has a hamster. Oh, God. The other thing you have to intuit, too, is like, if you make friends with Weird Ed, you still can't do certain things in his room. You have to get him out of there. So part of what you have to do, have someone ring the doorbell, and that'll send Weird Ed downstairs. And while he's there, you send another friend into the room. You can grab his hamster. Behind the hamster is a purple key card, which you need to get to the meteor. You can also smash his piggy bank and grab a bunch of dimes out of it, which you need for the telescope. Well, you can give his hamster back to him, of which he's happy, but there's a couple characters. You can put the hamster in the microwave. (laughs) And yes, it's not good. What's worse, after you blow up the hamster, you can give it back to Weird Ed. The game is over at that point. He kills you. You're killed. He kills you. You are killed. There's a great little story behind the hamster because I think there's only a couple characters that can do it. And one of them is uh, Razor. Razor. Thank you. I think it's Razor and Sid, the two musicians. I think they're the only two who can do it. So that was Winnick's idea. And so remember, Razor is based on Winnick's girlfriend, Ray. Right. (laughs) But Gilbert has the story where he comes in one day and Winnick's programming away and he's like, hey, you got to come see this. He goes, what'd you do? And Winnick shows the animation for the hamster. And he's like, we just laughed our butts off for so long after he did that. And we, we got to leave it in the game. They put it in the game? It's all Winnick's uh, sick humor. Well, it was great. Well, and this is the crazy thing. Of all of those objections Nintendo had, that still got into the game. Which is nuts! But what apparently, once that was realized, further production of the game, they had to take that out. Oh, really? So there are some apparently versions of the Nintendo game where that has been removed from the game. But I remember it. So I definitely must have played an earlier copy because I remember being able to do it. I don't remember how he figured it out, but I definitely remember that happening. Oh, that's awesome. So there's a few other things. You can waste all your dimes on the telescope and not get the code to get into Nurse Edna's safe. That'll end the game. You can also launch the Edsel without the meteor inside it, and that'll ruin right. some of the endings of the game. So right. if you put the key into the Edsel, it starts it, and the it takes off into space. Sorry, for those who haven't played, the Edsel is a really cool space car. And it's based off an actual old car called the Edsel, which was oh, really? this like awful old car that was like a huge failure, gosh, back in the 50s, I think. And it's just funny, because everyone in this Edna, Ed, Fred, they all have these Ed names, and then there's this car called the Edsel. So it's just like this great (laughs) tie-in of everything having Ed in the name. Which, that ending for launching the meteor into space is the Michael ending. So that's the the one I played today. I did the Michael ending. He's the photographer. He's the only one who can develop the plans. Weird Ed then decides to team up with you to defeat the meteor. So when you go down into the lab, you get caught by the purple tentacle. Weird Ed comes in, confronts the tentacle, chases him away, which allows you to go do your thing. And the great animation at the end is you see the meteor basically driving the car and it's going, wee! So. Great. I love that. No, that was, that's a hilarious ending. I love that. The fun thing about Sid or Razor is they can record music on the piano and give it to the green tentacle. And he loves the music and he teams up with you and basically does what Weird Ed does. He chases off Purple Tentacle. Oh, see, I never, like, the Green Tentacle comes to you when you go in his room. He's like, I'm so depressed. He's depressed. He can't get his band up and running. Yeah. And you know, like, I need a musician in there to do something, but I I could never put the pieces together. 
Yeah, so basically you can use the tape recorder to record their playing the piano, which then you give to the tentacle and he loves it. Yeah. Oh no, I take that back. You submit it to Mark Atier and you get a contract and you give the oh, contract back to the green tentacle. That's what That's it is. That's awesome. And then the other big ending with Bernard is he's the only one who can fix the radio that allows you to call the meteor police. And the oh. meteor police will come and arrest the meteor. Man, the thousands of objects I tried to plug into that radio to make it work, I could not get that thing going. It's all about the characters. Each character can do certain things. And that's what's kind of fun about this game in this era is it has a lot of replayability. Despite its frustrations, despite its dead ends, you see things that you can't use that you're like, wait, maybe this other character can do that. So it has this replayability that a lot of games of that era just simply do not have, which was really set it apart and was super cool for that time. They're only in my playthroughs, besides just being frustrated by puzzles, there are two things that I thought were kind of crazy. And maybe you, I'm just curious how you felt about these things. Sure. The The first thing was I played hours of the PC version, which you just get a little bit of like theme music at the beginning, like as the credits are rolling. And then it's crickets. Yeah. Like you get in the house and like the clock is tick tocking, the grandfather clock. And that's about it. And so I got really used to the quietness of the game. And then when I finally finished the game by watching a playthrough, hearing how it's nonstop music on the NES version, I actually could see how the NES version, that really gives you a lot more nostalgia because you've got that music. You've got your theme song that can like get stuck in your head. But I'd sort of gotten used to a silent house. So it kind of threw me off to finally hear the music. But you're an NES. That's what you played it on. The music's got to be close to you. It is, but I remember turning it off. Because I just found it very distracting to have that music playing constantly. And the version I played this time is Maniac Mansion Deluxe, which we'll talk about in contemporary culture. But in that version, the cutscenes have some music and occasionally certain rooms will have a little bit of music. So it adds a little in there, but it's not wall to wall. And I thought it was a good compromise. Okay. And I would say it is really weird. We've already went, went through it, but I'll just make the comment. It's very sterile to go from the PC game to the NES game that has been mm. virtue signaled and value moral <laughs> dumped on by Nintendo. Yeah. And, and so many of the things that made the game funny and surprising and shocking as a child are, are erased from the sure. Nintendo version. And I find that kind of bummer. It feels sterilized. Yeah. Like I said, when I was a kid, I didn't no, I didn't have those things, right, so the game right. was still fun. But yeah, there, there's a certain, what was I at the time? Probably 13 or so playing a game like Leisure Suit Larry. It felt a little like, <laughs> this is super adult, but like, I'm getting, again, I'm getting away with it and it's kind of fun. And it's not to the same extent with this game, but you definitely, the adult humor in it is something that I think as a kid is, I don't know, it's tantalizing, it's interesting. And I don't think it was done in a very like, overdrawn way it was just this like suggestive kind of humor that i don't know yeah i I agree is not having it in the game is a little like oh that sucks sure the only thing and like you said and very fairly i think very few companies have actually figured out how to do this well but inventory management is a headache in this game to me i think where it's just the bottom of your screen whatever you pick up it goes in there it's in text it's not an image of the object it's the text You can't sort it. So you can't sort by like keys or alphabetical. Right. It's just by the time you picked it up. And sometimes like you'll use objects on one another that are within your inventory, but there's no clear indicator that something has happened. Like they've Mm. combined or it didn't work. And then, yeah, you've just got to scroll and you can see four items at a time. 
you need to switch your characters to remember what's in their inventory. Like, there's no pause screen to be like, oh, Dave is holding this and Wendy is holding this. Like, the inventory kind of drove me a little nuts. Yeah, on the version I played, there are actually visuals of each item. So oh. maybe that gave it a little more depth than just the text. The best strategy, honestly, is whatever character you want to win with, give them everything. You know, I, yeah, I figured that out eventually, yeah. Yeah, but but again, that's a trial and error thing where you're like, wait, I don't have this thing to do this thing. I got to get this character, but they're in jail. And so it becomes very tricky. And so basically you have one character who more or less does everything and the other two assist. And that's really probably the best way to play the game. But again, you don't fully utilize everyone. But it is kind of fun to do this like... Okay, I need to have this character positioned here to do this. Okay, now yeah. we're going to distract Weird Ed. Now we're going to distract Edna. Now we're going to turn off the valve in the basement. But I have to have the other character by the pool because, like you said, you can't dally. You got to grab what you need, get oh out God. of there, and refill it. Got to move fast. Or it blows up. The other thing I thought was just kind of funny is there is a chainsaw in this game. Right. Like one of the first things you find is a chainsaw. It's in the kitchen. It's like on a knife rack. So it's like you've got these different knives and then a chainsaw, which you can pick up. But the gag is there's no fuel in it and you never get to use this chainsaw. I call this Chekhov's chainsaw. When you see a chainsaw in the first room, it has to be used by the end of the game. But this breaks that rule. You never get to use the chainsaw. No, there's so many objects that are just red herrings that I wasted so much time on. And Gilbert talks about the chainsaw that he's like, we just thought it was funny. And to have it next to all the dull knives, like they just thought that was such a funny joke. In a later game they did, Zach McCracken and the Alien Mindbenders, they had a can of fuel in that game. So it's almost like oh, a little in-joke, like, oh, here's the fuel. You the wrong game, dogs, though. You. Oh, chainsaw over there. So I thought that was like a, a nice little touch, nice little Easter egg. Can you explain something to me? So most sure. of this game makes sense. Sort of like, I feel like you said this somewhere else. If a story, if a cartoon, if a movie, if a show sets up its own logic... You can buy that logic, but the minute that medium breaks its own logic, you're like, come on, what's going on? You made rules. What's going on? So I get, okay, a meteor comes down, it's sentient, it's going to possess Dr. Fred, Dr. Fred's going to do some bad stuff. I'm on board with it. I don't understand why that whole family looks kind of like zombies. I don't know if I get that yet. What I don't understand is why are there two tentacles? That's what you don't get? (laughs) (laughs) That's what I can't, what... Where do these tentacles come from? Why is there a good one? Why is there a bad one? What's going on? I, I can't answer that for you. I don't know. You don't know. know. I thought you would know. Is this like a thing maybe kids would make up their own backstories too of like where the tentacles came from? Maybe. I mean, they get prominent feature in the sequel. That's for Absolutely, sure. Absolutely. Right? And people cosplay as the tentacles and stuff. Like there's a yeah. lot of love out there for the tentacles. Yeah, I don't really know where they came from or why they're okay. there. It's just one of those weird idiosyncrasies of the game where it's like, we need a character here. Well, why not have it be a tentacle? I don't know where it came from, though. Right? Uh, I'm wondering if there is some crappy B-movie that was just about, was tentacles. And they were like, I mean, right, you have we'll to do imagine, tentacles. right? Like a giant octopus or a squid from right. the sea or something like that. Right. So one last question I had for you, Ben, is did you have a favorite room? Obviously, you had a room you were in the most, which is the dungeon. Oh, my God. I spent so much time in the dungeon. But was there like a room in this game or a specific puzzle that you really enjoyed, thought was cool, stood out? And for those people who don't understand what the heck we're talking about, when you get captured and you get thrown in this dungeon, there is no clear way to get out of the dungeon. Yeah. And I was under the impression that if all three of your characters end up there, the game won't end, but you're done. That's it. But truth be told, there is one of the, I don't know, 150 rocks on the wall. One of them, if you hover over it, it says push. And it's a secret door that you have 
no joke, maybe two and a half seconds to get one other character out the door if you open it. And then it closes again. And that drove me bonkers. So you didn't like that room. What room did you like? Or what puzzle was fun for you? You know what I was stuck on for a long time is I didn't realize the concept that if you found a record and you found a blank cassette and you got to the right machine, you could record onto the cassette and do different stuff around the house. Yep. And once I figured that out, that sort of opened a window primarily where I could go and play it in one room and a chandelier breaks, you get a key. But just finally piecing that multiple things together of like, I'm going to find a record, I'm going to find a cassette, I'm going to put them both in the machine, record, now play it in another room and to make something happen. That was like a good chain of events that made, I felt accomplished with that one. I think that's one of the puzzles that you can intuitively figure out. Like it might take a little trial and error, but once you find all the pieces, you're like, oh, wait. And then you put the right pieces together that, I think, is one of the more satisfying puzzles to fix. Yeah, absolutely. Again, aficionado, you've played it through with every permutation of characters. What's your favorite uh, trap there? What's your favorite plug? I don't know if it's my favorite, but I do like the ones where you have to coordinate. So there's one where you have to turn off the power to fix these wires up in an attic. Because oh. if you try to have a character fix the wires before you turn the power off, like in real life, they'll get electrocuted. And I think that ends the game. So you have to coordinate it where you turn off the power, the lights go out, and then you fix the wires, but you have to have the flashlight and you have to have the good batteries in order to use it to see to fix the wires. And then you turn the power back on. And that, I think, makes the arcade machines work again. You can get the arcade machines working? I don't think you can play them. That's what gets Dr. Fred to play the game, to get the high score, to get the code to get into his lab. And so that's another one where it's like you can kind of figure it out. Uh, I do like the chandelier one as well, but that's another one I think is really cool. But some of these, like I said, are not intuitive. And and again, on talking about dead ends and the not intuitive stuff, you know, Gilbert was like, we weren't trying to be cruel. It was really just naivete. Yeah. The two of us played this game. No one else play tested it. He's like, in a modern game, that would all be fixed in play testing. But it was just us. So we weren't trying to be mean. In fact, they were trying to get rid of a lot of the unnecessary deaths that a lot of Sierra games had. They're like, this is obnoxious. We don't like this anymore. Even though they did kind of end up putting some, uh, obviously, in their own game. But that was like one of their goals. So they really just kind of chalked it up to, we just wanted to make a good game. And we were trying to figure it all out. And we made some mistakes. Well, and I'm so glad you brought that back up because that blew my mind. Two people, two yeah. people made this whole video game. Yeah. Earlier in the winter, I played Halo Infinite and you get to the end and it feels like 20 minutes of credits. Oh, yeah. Where it's just hundreds, hundreds of and yeah. hundreds. And you just look at like, I'm sorry, I don't mean to like call out Microsoft on this. It's, it's most studios of any kind, but just like the corporate bloat on a development team to make mm. these things. You know, there was no fat to trim on Maniac Mansion. It was Gilbert Winnick, and they made this game, and arguably a great game. But it's just wild to see how many people it takes to make a popular game today. I will say there actually were a couple more people who were involved. They, these two were the co-leads. There were a few more that helped with, like, music and some of the programming. Right, so it wasn't right, just them, but still, right. talk about a very slim team. But it brings you back a little bit to, like, why indie is so popular these days, too. Like, these indie games where, like, one or two people make a game and yep. a community builds around it. And, like, it works. It's impressive. It's really cool. It's really awesome. And like any good class in high school, part of what you do is you make mistakes and you learn from the lessons, Right. It doesn't go as planned. And so on grumpygamer.com, which is Gilbert's (laughs) blog website that he's maintained since about 2004, 
He wrote an article that's posted there, and you can read it, Why Adventure Games Suck and What We Can Do About It. And basically, he talks about some of these pitfalls, and he creates these rules of thumb. There's several, but there's just a couple I wanted to mention, because I feel like these are definitely lessons he learned from Maniac Mansion. End objectives need to be clear, and sub-goals need to be obvious. You need to kind of guide your player along without, like you said, there's some things where you get no hints about what you're supposed to do. You don't get a, a bit of dialogue or a nudge or something in the environment that tells you. You're just kind of like shooting in the dark and hoping you hit that target. Which I want to come back to in Day of the Tentacle when we talk about in contemporary culture. Absolutely. (laughs) This is great. Another one is no deaths. That shouldn't be how you learn the game. Yeah. Another interesting one, he says, no backward puzzles. He's saying show the problem before the solution. Oh, yeah. So again, you see that key up in the chandelier that should come first. And then you find the other objects that right. allow you to figure out, aha, that's how I can get there versus showing you all the things and then the problem. I spent about an hour trying to get up on the couch to just reach it. There's a couch right there. Why can't I stand <laughs> on the couch and grab the key? It's, it's like, driving me nuts. Come on. Oh my God. And, and another one is the puzzle should advance the story. And like I said, there's a lot more on his blog, but I just thought like, well, this is good. You know, what he takes forward and a lot of the other games he works on at LucasArts and uh, Humongous Entertainment, which is another company I think he co-founds. Those are some learning lessons he takes forward to really say, okay, we're going to make this genre even better, which is great. I love it. Smart. It's really good. And you can see those lessons, again, come out in the future LucasArts games. Absolutely. Speaking of putting lessons learned, there are some fun things that happen in Maniac Mansion that go elsewhere, but there's just, there's a lot of fun Easter eggs in Maniac Mansion, which I thought was really cool. You've got Chuck the Plant, which is, of course, inspired by Audrey from Little Shop of Horrors. Yep. So they go on to put it in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade in the Lucasfilm Click Adventure. Okay. And it's also in the lobby of Day of the Tentacle. Yes, that's right. That's right. The plant sort of carries through, which I thought was really good. Speaking of other like LucasArts properties, LucasFilm properties in general, when you go into Weird Ed's room, there is an X-Wing suspended from the ceiling. There is. Which I thought was great. That's right. And I knew this and I was so glad that later, again, I saw that lecture by Gilbert that answered the question. But when you go in Weird Ed's room, he's got this very weird poster that sort of looks like a decision tree. Yes. Like there's rectangles by lines. And I was like, I wonder if that's sort of like a map of the house and I'm supposed to interpret this to know where I'm supposed to go and right. later Gilbert says it, it's sort of like the plot of the game like it's the map that him and Winnick have mapped out about how the game flows and that's what they literally had on a piece of paper so they could remember what they were doing that was the original map you mentioned the green tentacle wants to become a rock star in his room he's got two huge speakers and they are THX brand which mm. is sound technology developed by Lucasfilm oh right, right so I thought that was a cool little nod the last little thing I thought was really impressive about this is that they came up with this anti-piracy gag. Not really a gag, but a solution that I guess back when you actually bought this physical cartridge, mm-hmm. in the instruction manual, there was a code for uh, the silver door. You come to this big locked silver door, yep, and the manual had a unique code for that door in your game. And if you put in the wrong code, you would die as a character. You couldn't progress. Copyright protection. It was the bane of all of those games back then. Yeah. There was some gimmick in the game that you had to refer to a manual to progress. It was so frustrating. Which I find that fascinating because certainly PC games I've gotten before when you boot it up, our software of any kind, enter your key, right? right? You enter the key. But I love that you could get, you know, you could play the game for about 20 minutes, 30 minutes, and then you come to this door and that's where the protection came in for copyright. And again, you had no way of looking this stuff up because there was no internet. 
Right. Exactly. Those are great facts. I love it. Fun facts. Quick fun facts. Well, Ben, all of this talk of wax fruit and old riding turkey has me famished. <laughs> what the, the turkey such a red herring. What am I supposed to do with the turkey? Uh, oh, God. So, let's say we distract Nurse Edna and head downstairs to the cafeteria for a bite. Then we can dash to Dr. Fred's Chronogon and warp to the future to find out what adventure comes next. I'm famished. Let's do it. You can enjoy the world of beauty, excitement, and adventure. All these and more can be yours in the wonderful world of art. Here's how you can find out if you have the interest and desire needed to become a serious art student. You can test your artistic interest right in your own home with this art test from Art Instruction Schools. It's fun and challenging, yet easy to complete. And when you're finished, you simply mail it in. One of our experts will review and grade it, and that's all there is to it. To get your free art test without cost or obligation, call this toll-free number now. But don't wait, because the beauty, excitement, and adventure of art are waiting for you. To get your free art test, call this toll-free number now. Okay, we made it to contemporary culture. Man, Nurse Edna gave us a good run for our money, but you yes. figured out how to combine the wheels and the shoes, and we just roller skated past her. She she didn't have a chance. <laughs> uh, yeah, but she said some concerning things to me. I'm like, come back here, cutie. Oh. I should have tied you to my parka lounger. Like she was very dirty talk. Dirty, dirty, dirty talk. talk. Gotta watch out for Edna. So what did Maniac Mansion lead to? Mm, well, yeah. first off, as we mentioned, the scum system is the basis for a lot of games that follow. So you have The Secret of Monkey Island and its two sequels, Day of the Tentacle, the sequel to this game, Zach McCracken and the Alien Mindbenders, two of the Indiana Jones games, Sam and Max Hit the Road, and The Dig, the game that oh, you like. The Dig. Scum is the system that's underneath all of these games. And it, it gets a little refinement along the way, but that's the basis for a lot of these point-and-click adventure games, particularly from LucasArts, that come next, which is super cool. Well... Something happens in 1990, Benjamin. Did oh, God. Oh, see no. this? I watched one. I did, too. They make, uh, folks, listen, a television show oh boy. called Maniac Mansion. And it runs for three seasons and 62 episodes. Ostensibly, this is an adaptation of the computer game, right? So it really shares just superficial similarities. And it's really different in terms of the plot, the tone, the characterization. You know, the original characters are pretty much completely absent, minus Dr. Fred Edison. He's not this mad scientist. He's this clumsy, good-natured family man. I mean, also a scientist. I mean, still a scientist. He's a scientist, yeah. but but not like the mad scientist kind no, of thing. No, not that, at you all. Know, he's not, there's a meteor, but it's not really referenced much in it. And it doesn't seem to have any mind-controlling abilities over Ed, yeah, Fred right. or the family. So what they do is they have Second City television writer and performer Eugene Levy. I know! Come in to spearhead the series. And originally it's like, hey, we're going to have this horror sci-fi themed comedy. Again, in the vein of shows like Adam's Family, Munsters. And Levy says, not going to happen. 
He reworks the entire show from the ground up. It's lighthearted. It's surreal. And he casts as Dr. Fred, Joe Flaherty from Second City and tons of other people, alums from this Second City cast and crew. Yeah, which is actually pretty impressive. That's actually really cool. I like that history of it. It's super cool, but it really just makes this completely different and oh, very it's... much like SCTV. It's got dry wit, cultural satire, pop culture references and parodies, breaking of the fourth wall, meta-referential humor, which, you know, there's a little fourth wall breaking in the original game. Yeah. But really, that's about it. And it's a really bizarre show. I watched a, an episode and a half and stopped. I did not find it very good. What did you think? No, I could Sounds only like watch, you didn't really. <laughs> I could barely watch one episode where I kept just clicking a little further on the YouTube time. Ahead, yeah. Thing. Which one did it's, you watch? It's it had something to do with there was like a fly in the house, and Grandma was really upset about a fly. There's a character that's a fly with a human head. Yeah, and like a, was it a, that a, one? a second fly shows up, and so oh, the older lady in the house is like, "There's too many flies in the house," and that's the plot. Uh. I mean, it's bad acting, it's poorly shot, it's weird sets, like, the dialogue is bad. It's just, I thought I, it was really hard to watch. I mean, honestly, this show shouldn't have even been called Maniac Mansion. Like, it shares no. almost none of the DNA. Absolutely Again, it's all not. superficial connections at best. Well, apparently, pretty generatively positive reviews from critics at the time, during its initial run... It was called things like the looniest, sweetest family comedy of the year. What? Hilarious, stylized, sharp-edged comedy with a bit of David Lynch on helium. These were some of the reviews. Um, Maybe reviews we had to the watch. cast. I think the cast <laughs> wrote these reviews. It's ridiculous. Maybe oh my God. if we watched more of it, we would have picked up on it. Or maybe it's just like time in a bottle and you can't recapture it. I don't know. But the gaming community, particularly fans of the show, were not impressed. Pretty mixed reviews. Again, really having no connection to the game. Yeah. So what I read was that Ron Gilbert and Gary Winnick, designers again of the original game, have never made a public comment about this show. Oh. So we don't know what they think about it. Oh, I have God. my I think I would very know strong they, suspicions. Yep. I don't think we have to guess too hard. But Ben, this was nominated for 16 awards. Did you see this? And it won two awards. Were they all Razzies? Run. They're Razzies. <laughs> That's all it can be. Actual awards, I wouldn't say like in A Christmas Story, they were major awards, but... (laughs) (laughs) They're all naked leg lamps. That's all it is. But they were awards. Wow. So 1993, that's where we get the big sequel, Day of the Tentacle. Yeah. Ben, you mentioned way back earlier in the episode, our protagonist, Bernard, friend of Dave is now the lead character. Yeah, exactly. Of this new gang of friends. Oh, yeah. Hoagie and Laverne. So unlike in the original game where you could choose your group of three, this has a set group of three. They were thinking about adding different friends. It just became really complicated, above budget, beyond their scale. So really for a lot of complexity reasons said, okay, let's just focus on having these three characters. And the plot picks up later and they're attempting to stop the evil purple tentacle from taking over the world. So now the purple tentacle, no longer a henchman, he becomes the main bad guy. And you get a return of all of the Edison family. Oh, I say I didn't play it far enough to see them. That's cool. That's cool, they're back. And so the players take control of this trio and they solve puzzles, but time travel becomes an element in this game, which is super fun. Yes, I did play far enough to find that. That is really smart, really innovative. I like that a lot. 
So you have the three different characters, but they end up getting cast in the past, present, and future. And much like in the original game, have to work together, even with their items in inventory, in order to solve puzzles. I'll stop there. Ben, you said you played about a half hour of this game. Initial thoughts? I was so surprised. So uh, I had a couple of friends who wanted to play online a couple nights ago, and I got Game Pass on Xbox to do that, which I didn't have before. And right out of the gate in their catalog, they had Full Throttle, Mist, and Day of the Tentacle. I was Mm. like, oh, Click Adventures, download, 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 no problem. Right. I played about a half an hour into it. And I was loving it. I, I honestly, when we stop recording tonight, I'm probably going to go back and play a little more of it. It's, uh, you know, the humor has ratcheted way up. Uh, now you've got voice acting. The animation yeah. is all polished. And the tentacles are funny right from the start. But it's good. It's like, oh, right. And we talked about this. So right at the beginning, there's like a, there's a scientist that's helping you. It's Dr. Fred. It's Dr. Fred. Oh, that's Dr. Fred. Okay. Yeah. So I forget the exact dialogue, but the nature of what he says is he's, he's going on a big monologue about everything that's going on. And he says, but what we really need to do is go back in time and get my battery. So this will work. So again, I want to be very clear. You need to go <laughs> back in time and get, so he's like really blunt of like, here's the problem. Yeah. Here's what you need to solve. Yeah. Which you didn't get in Maniac Mansion. It was just like. Explore the house. Find the girlfriend. I think the voice acting really ratchets the game up a lot. The original release, I think the cutscenes had voice acting, but there wasn't any dialogue during the actual gameplay. It was all text at the bottom. But the remastered version, dialogue throughout, which is super cool. Oh, yeah, right. I'm excited to see where it goes. It's such a fun game. I don't want to get too much into it because I want you to experience it firsthand. But Dave Grossman and Tim Schaefer lead development of this game, and they had Gilbert and Winnick come back to help with planning and writing of this game. So you get the alums, they're not at the helm, but they Mm. come back to offer some initial insights into the game and send Dave and Tim on their way. And as you mentioned, I think they really deliver. A couple funny things about this game. There's a computer in the game where you can play the entirety of Maniac Mansion. Oh, I've heard that. I do want to find that. That's pretty awesome. It's so meta. It's so good. So this game comes out. It's a moderate commercial success, but highly praised by critics and gamers. Again, the humor, the art style, the improved controls, sound, and graphics from the original, taking out those dead ends and player deaths were all huge positives from this game. Some of the negatives, you know, there's still some of that trial and error of puzzle solving. Some of them still don't have underlying logic. Uh, Another downside was it had really high system requirements to play at the time, so that was a barrier to entry. I remember when I played this game, I feel like my computer was really sluggish at certain parts, and it was just like lag. Please kill me! Really taxing. Uh, But this game is featured regularly in these lists of top games, and I won't go through all of them, but it shows up in a bunch of those top 10s, top 100s. Yeah, I'm so glad that I finally got to sink my teeth into it. Because exactly, you see that on every list of top 10 games or whatever. So super cool. You know, there are a few video games that I think are going to be surprising that I think have some DNA from Maniac Mansion. Oh, do tell. I was like, you know what? This reminds me of this. And I don't think it's a straight line, but maybe maybe there's something there. So I'll go, I yeah. just got three that I love. Yeah, what you got? What you got? In 89, there was a computer game called Chips Challenge. Have you ever heard of this? Mm-mm. Chips Challenge. You're basically playing somebody that looks like Mr. Bill from Saturday Night Live in the 80s. Okay. Uh, it's basically what Chip looks like. And yeah, you're just in big maps where you're trying to find keys or objects to get over other obstacles and, and things like that. So there might be fire and you need to find 
a fire extinguisher to put it out, to move. Or you, there's water, so you need to find a snorkel mask. Hmm. But that felt a little bit of like, look for an element to pass a barrier. Okay. The second of the three it came out in 1993, and that was The Lost Vikings. Did you ever play The Lost Vikings? I didn't play it. I'm familiar with it. Yeah. So The Lost Vikings is a platformer. You are controlling three characters at once, mm-hmm. each of which has a different skill. So one has like a shield that can block enemies or he can put it up and he becomes a platform you can jump on. One can like run and, and barge things with his helmet. He can break through walls and one has a weapon. Hmm. And it just reminded me of this, I think, and I you didn't say this in history, so I don't know if it's true or not. But Maniac Mansion struck me as a very early game where you could choose a different loadout of characters to play the game. And I don't know how many games came before Maniac Mansion that gave you that option, if any. I think there was some character selection, but not you're choosing a cast of characters with exactly. different abilities. Yeah. And so The Lost Vikings is like Day of the Tentacle where you're not choosing. You get these three, but you are controlling three different characters at once, which is like With Maniac different Mansion. abilities. Yeah. With different abilities. So that was cool. Yeah. And the last one, another one of my favorites, which I've been on a quest to try and find and play, but I can't get the right stuff to like make it work on my computer someday. Okay. There's this game from 1997 called The Space Bar. And I think you would love this game in all sincerity. You're a space detective. You're way in the future and you're okay. a detective and you walk into this bar in some sleazy backwater space town. And you, it's a click adventure, and you're interview. There's a, there's been a murder, hmm. and you are interviewing all of the patrons that all look crazy, kooky designs and of different dispositions about their alibis and what they saw and where they were, and you're trying to find keys to get into rooms to find evidence. It's like a space noir, hmm. and I think you would love it. But anyway, those three games, I all thought like there's some DNA from Maniac Mansion here. It definitely sounds like it, yeah. And like you said, even if it's not a direct line, you can see some of those pieces that really make games kind of unique and stand out, particularly at this time. Oh, yeah. Either by system limitations or any other number of factors, you just didn't get enough of that. So every time a game did something new like that, your mind was kind of blown, like, boom, oh my gosh. Right. This is an option? Amazing. That's awesome. So in 2000. Four, Maniac Mansion yeah. Deluxe is released. This is a 256-color fan-made remake released by a group called Lucas Fan Games, which I thought was hilarious. They release it for free. It features an in-game soundtrack. And again, this is the version I played of the game. So oh, it just adds okay. a little more to the game than what you get in the original. Like It's not wall-to-wall, but it's there a little bit. And it was a great way to play the game. I really enjoyed it. Well, it's funny you mentioned that that happened in 2004 because 2004 is another massive watermark that year is when LucasArts declares, you know what? We're not going to make adventure games anymore. We're done. We're getting out of this. We have decided to get out of the business of joy. But what happens, Ben? Right. Thank goodness there are a couple people on that team who are like, no, 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 no. All we know is adventure games. We're great at them. We love them. We're going to keep making them. And they spun off to build Telltale Games. Telltale Games. And I have played through a lot of these click adventures, you know, and they're, they're big on taking their licensing. So they'll take an IP that exists and they'll make yeah. a great click adventure in that IP. And what's really cool about these is they, it's, it's still the adventure game, but they use like novel episodic releases. So it's like you get right. chapters of the game that are released and it's a little more of choose your own adventure. It's kind of like these old school adventure games meets the choose your own yeah. adventure. Which is really cool. Yeah, and frankly, they're way easier. <laughs> they're, they're, they're like, <laughs> it's not nearly as difficult of like how the LucasArts games were. 
Well, and what's really cool too is they created their own game engine, much like Scum was developed for oh. Maniac Mansion. They created the Telltale tool. So the that's the game. TTT. So that's what they use as the game engine. So that was cool that they were also like, you know what? No one else has the right engine. I'm going to make my own. Yeah. So they've done Batman. They've done Jurassic mm-hmm. Park to no one's surprise mm-hmm. that I played. Back mm-hmm. to the Future, which was really fun. Back to the Future was really good. Uh, the Walking Dead they did. That was one of their big landmark earlier games for yeah, sure. Yeah, that was huge. Am I missing other main Guardians problems? of the Galaxy? Oh, I didn't know that. Cool. Yeah. So, and then in addition to that, they took some of those old LucasArts games. So they did several Sam and Max titles. Oh, they did a Monkey yeah. Island. And I don't think this is based off of property, but I think another one of their really popular earlier ones was The Wolf Among Us. Oh, oh yeah, that's right. I forgot It's kind about of a that. retelling of like fairy tale characters. And so there's this character that can turn into a wolf. I actually have it in my Steam library. I've never played it. Oh, and they did one based off of the Borderland games. There's one from Borderlands. They oh, did cool. That Telltale oh, did. I right, played right, that right, one. Right, 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 right. They're fun. Yeah, and thinking of you know them using IPs in this kind of way, I do. We do have a little insider baseball. You and I have a mutual friend who used to work at LucasArts. Mm-hmm. But LucasArts around this time, you know, we're talking about the transition from Click Adventures to what other kind of properties LucasArts wanted to pursue, and they had been working for a long time on an Indiana Jones game. You know, they did a Click mm. Adventure with Indiana Jones, but they're trying to work on a new one, and then out of nowhere comes this Tomb Raider game. Oh. And they basically were like, all right, pencils down, everybody. They had basically been doing Tomb Raider, but with Indiana Jones. And then the yeah. Tomb Raider came out, was a huge hit. And they're like, all right, pack up shop. We're done. Uh, Such a bummer. Well, speaking of packing up shop, Telltale Games has an ending to uh, its existence, unfortunately. unfortunately. It's really heartbreaking, actually. I loved their games. And speaking of kind of out of nowhere, they declared bankruptcy 2018. Company is dissolved. They have a lot of works that were in progress. I think they had a sequel to Wolf Among Us. They had a, a Stranger Things game that was in development. Really? And all that stuff kind of got wrapped up. I think they released one more Walking Dead game just kind of to fulfill an obligation. But after that, sadly, no more Telltale games. That's such a bummer. But, you know, Telltale was really credited with this idea of the narrative choice and creating branching stories and adventure games. Again, it's kind of like this choose your own adventure books, add it to these adventure games, And you had this just wonderful marriage there. You know, around a little later than 2004, another thing comes across. And I'm going out on another limb here. I'm going out on so many limbs. This tree is going to come down is what I'm trying to say. But another thing came out that I'm going to say maybe has some DNA from Maniac Mansion in it that we could say contemporary culture. We could say it. All right. Escape rooms. Because Hmm. Maniac Mansion is an escape room where like you go in. And you are trying to match puzzle elements to open something that will lead you to part of the solution to the next puzzle. Everything is in the environment you're in. Yeah. You are presented with the problems first. Yeah. You've probably done escape rooms with several different groups of people. And we all have a Jeff in our circle of friends (laughs) where you get in there and they're like, I never knew this is what it was going to be. And you're like, Jeff, buddy, we have 20 minutes on the clock. I need you to find this cipher. Why are you here? Tick tock. This mansion is going to explode. Tick tock, Jeff. Tick tock. First off, someone needs to make a maniac mansion escape room. If that has not been oh, done Oh, that would be get so smart. The licensing. Oh, that'd be huge. No, I think that's a, that's a great connection I hadn't thought about, but I think you're absolutely right. There's a little bit of that fun there of using the environment and the clues in it to solve challenges. I like it. I like it. Nicely done. Thank you. Well, I have just a couple more things for contemporary culture. And one of them is that we see a reuniting of Gary Winnick 
and Ron Gilbert. Did you see this, Ben? No, they get back together? Oh. Thimbleweed Park, a game that comes out in 2017, billed as a spiritual successor to Maniac Mansion. And basically, the story is they're having lunch together. They're talking about these old school games. Like, why aren't these games made anymore? What was the charm to them? Like, why did they have charm? And they're like, we don't really know, but we wanted to make another one. And so they come up with this idea for Thimbleweed Park. And the game has a retro style of artwork. It's back to that point and click. They wanted to parody TV shows like Twin Peaks, X-Files, True Detective. Yeah, the two main characters definitely, I'm looking at right now, Scully and Mulder. Yeah. They totally look like Scully and Mulder. Oh, absolutely. So they're based off that archetype, but like these two characters hate each other and they're terrible at working together. Oh my God. And they're two of the five characters that you can play in this game. And Gilbert said this really cool thing. He's like, we wanted to build a game that wasn't like a game back then, but like you remembered a game back then. Oh, interesting. And it's this idea that there are these games out there that are reminiscent of the old school games, but they're actually not completely the same and in many ways better. And my best analogy that I can think of for that is Stardew Valley. Stardew Valley is to me like, it looks like it's Super Nintendo graphics, but it's not a Super Nintendo game because it's so much better and it has so much more that you can do that those old games couldn't do, but it's so reminiscent of the... Super NES era of games. I like that. And I also want to point out that was another one I downloaded on uh, Xbox Game Pass, Stardew Valley, which I've never played. Oh, so oh. I'm going to finally get to try that. I don't want to tell you how many hours I have in my Steam library. Yeah, from no, that game. You know, no judgment. I think the other analogy that you just said that I think is parallel to Thimbleweed Park, I'll go with someone like The Midnight. The Midnight oh, yeah. produces yep. 80s music that is so reminiscent of an era and you're like oh this has got to be a song that i heard from these but it's not and in some ways it is better yeah it takes that 80s nugget and writes great lyrics and adds new instruments and yeah i totally just get that. new production styles and values right and, right i get that yeah. i see that 80s retro wave feels like the 80s but it's not exactly yeah i think that's a great analogy have you played thimbleweed Park? I haven't. You know, it's in my wish list on Steam. Yeah. But I haven't played it yet. And just a synopsis is this pair of washed up detectives that we mentioned kind of look like Scully and Mulder from X-Files are called to investigate a death in the titular town that once boasted an opulent hotel, a vibrant business district, and the state's largest pillow factory, but now teeters on the edge of oblivion and continues to exist for no real reason. And you take these five characters... Through the game, you solve puzzles. It's this classic interface based on that scum engine once again. And they self-published it, and they funded it through Kickstarter. It ends up raising almost twice their funding goal. And one of the cool things about the Kickstarter, one of the reward tiers is that you could appear in the phone book. So there's a phone book in the game where you can look characters up. And if you're in this particular tier, your name gets added there. And then during the Kickstarter, someone just made a joking comment, like, wouldn't it be neat if they could also record a voice message? And so Ron Gilbert's like, I think we can make that happen. So he creates this entire system so that any of those 3,000 plus backers had the option to record a message that goes into the game. And as I understand, there's over 100 that are in the game. So you can look at this phone book. Oh, my God. Any of the like bolded names, if you call that number, you get a message from that backer. Oh, that's super cool. I love that. That's really smart. What a great era just to be able to have this level of involvement that's so much fun and it's immersive and it's personal and just really cool. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's (laughs) 
that's I'm glad you dug up that story. That's actually really neat. How to get that's way cooler than just getting like a button or a badge as a backer. Right. Thimbleweed Park is released to positive reviews from critics. It's got an 84 out of 100 on the review aggregator on Whoa. Metacritic. So it's definitely a game I do want to check out at some point. Like I said, it's on my list. And uh, researching it more has really made me interested in playing this game. So super cool. Nice. Yeah. I'm interested in checking it out. And the very last thing I have for contemporary culture is that there's a fan-made sequel to Day of the Tentacle what? called Return of the Tentacle. Oh my god. This is released in 2018 by a team in Germany, released for free. The game imitates the art style of the remastered edition of Day of the Tentacle, features full voice acting, and the story follows Bernard and his pals Hogan Laverne as the Purple Tentacle seeks revenge on them for everything that happens in Day of the Tentacle. So I do I'm curious like how do you get away with that? Like how can you just make you can like crib the art style. You can crib the whole like all the characters, and they don't get in trouble. That's a great question. I do not know. I mean, it's. I think it's still available. I looked it up on YouTube and saw a playthrough, and I just kind of clicked around. I didn't watch the whole thing, but it's the exact art style from. It is. Day it of the looks Tentacle. like it looks like it came from Lucasfilm or LucasArts. Yeah, kind of cool. So that's what I have for contemporary culture. Is there anything else? Any other amazing connections that I missed that you're making? I mean, you've had like... No, that's all I've got. All right. Well, we've given up. We've pulled out our old copy of Nintendo Power <laughs> Issue 16. Are we calling in the support? We're going to read through the player guide and figure out the solution to this game in math class. Uh, thank gosh, because I am stuck and I need help. We got to get past this. Oh, we're going to get it, buddy. All right, we're in math class. Teamwork has made the dream work. We made it. <laughs> Benjamin, you just had your your maiden voyage into playing Maniac Mansion in 2022 for the very first time. What is your assessment in math class of this game? So I've, I've, I'm breaking down math class into three parts. Three is okay. the magic. We're in math. Three is the magic number. Triangle. Rule of threes. Rule of rule threes. threes. My first takeaway from Maniac Mansion is more on like a creative and a business side mm. where like, I think it was really critical when Gilbert was like, the, the, one of the biggest advantages was we were left alone. We were given a, a goal. We were put in an amazing setting, Skywalker Ranch. And then they mm. kind of just checked in on us once in a while over 18 months as they made the game. And I think that's huge. I think that's really important for any of you who are out there who are managing one person or a team of people. Uh, we've all heard the term micromanagement. It just kills the creative process. And you, people who yep. are creative and have an idea, you just kind of back off for a little bit and let them work. And uh, amazing things like Maniac Mansion can come out of it. The other sort of business thing, when Gilbert does this lecture a decade ago in Germany at this game conference, his sort of mic drop quote at the end of his 45-minute presentation, he said, we had no idea what we were doing. <laughs> and sometimes you just need to do things. Because if you know too much or you think too much, it can hurt more than help. That was his quote. Yeah. And I thought that was good. You know, I've always boiled that down. What I've heard the phrase as is analysis paralysis. Yep. And you're just sitting there. You're running the numbers on everything you should do and what you can do. And you're doing your risks and mitigations and your decision trees. And, oh, months have gone past and the opportunity is gone. Or you analyze the passion out of yourself where you had a cool idea but now you're just spent thinking too much about how to execute it, and now it's not fun anymore. 
Yeah. Just do, just do the thing. And, th- and that's how you make it happen. So I love the two business lessons there on Maniac Mansion. The second of three analysis is scum. Scum is frankly one of the biggest reasons I wanted to do the 80s High podcast show. Hmm. Because I look around in today's contemporary culture and pop culture and people are all excited about stuff. And I feel like this weird, the end of the world is near sandwich board wearing guy down in Times Square where it's like, this started 30 years ago. I know you love this thing, but this thing wouldn't exist without this thing. And you should love the first thing more. That's why I wanted to do 80s High. And Maniac Mansion is the thing. All these games you love, escape rooms, other different types of board games and video games, and even structures to movies or other storytelling all comes back to this scum engine and what these guys did. And again, kind of like Garbage Pail Kids, scum is punk rock. They didn't have to name it a word that can make some st- some people upset, but they're like, you know what? Right. Let's call it scum. That's funny. That's an internal joke. This yeah. this amazing, brilliant software is, is the word scum. And that's punk rock. That's anti-establishment. And that's awesome. <laughs> that's awesome. So the last part, though, you asked me what I think about Maniac Mansion, because those are the lessons I'm taking from Maniac Mansion. But what do I think about it? Look, it's a great game. It's fun. I appreciate that I finally got to get into it and play it. I think that will be probably my first and my final tango with Maniac Mansion for just for just two reasons. They're not big reasons. Sure. It, the game is not broken to me. One is, though, it did remind me how much I miss couch co-op and how today's mm. contemporary culture of video games, we've sort of lost the culture of getting together with friends in a basement or your parents' office on their computer and playing games together to try and solve the puzzles together. Yeah. And that's why I ran into so many hurdles with playing Maniac Mansion is because I didn't have someone there to bounce stuff off of live. And that would have been fun because the game's humor is fun to experience with another person. But it just made me mix those Nintendo and Super Nintendo and N64 days. Mm. Um, or even PC, watching someone play, you know, Diablo together or Mech Warrior. I miss that a lot. I mean, we even got together fairly recently and just, uh, played a PlayStation 2 game together. And it was just so much fun so much to fun. sit on a couch with a friend and play this old game and talk about this and that. Or I think you can get into this area here. That was so cool. Yeah. And I just, you know, that's probably a whole nother episode of some kind to piece that together of how we've lost that in gaming culture. We've gone from the basement to our own little headsets and microphones on mm. uh, live passes and PSN and things like that. But I miss that. And the other part is just... I like click adventures, but the click adventures that came out after Maniac Mansion, because of Maniac Mansion, I love so much. The humor and the art style in Sam and Max still gets me in stitches Mm. as an adult. I still think Sam Mm. and Max dialogue is so funny. Oh, yeah. Indiana Jones, such a cool IP. And to get, get that you get to control Jones and go on an adventure just like the movies, that was so much fun. And honestly, The Dig is one of my top five video games of all time. The art is gorgeous. The story is fun. The music is so immersive and great. So not that I have anything against Maniac Mansion, but really I just love its children so much more uh, <laughs> that I don't need to go back to the OG because its kids are great. It did, a, it did a great job raising kids. It was a great oh, parent uh, and its kids are awesome. So yeah, I love the John through Maniac Mansion. Uh, I'm glad I survived, but I needed a lot of help to make that survival happen. <laughs> I was going to say, you still enjoyed it despite blowing up many, many times. So many times. But you, sir, many, many weekend evenings with friends on the carpet playing through it. What'd you think? 
I feel like my analysis, yours was so sprawling and just well said. That was place. amazing. I feel like this is going to just be boring in comparison. <laughs> Never. And I'll say it anyway. Say That's it what we anyway. do on the show. Just, you know, I, I concede. This is a lesser statement than what Benjamin just Lies. said. Lies. Never happens. But the truth is, I'm surely biased about this game. I have this undeniable nostalgia for it. I, I just have to put that out there. That's completely boilerplate truth. <laughs> Can't escape it. Also, you have to admit, for a late 80s game, this was pretty revolutionary. Oh, yeah. And it was picking up on what worked well in other adventure games and improving on it, a style that was later adapted by other games and developers, some of which we've talked about. And that's cool. That's amazing. Like you said, they have a lot of beautiful offspring and cousins. Ooh, and cousins, <laughs> right. You take that, then you add in the ability to mix and match this team. It gives you the replayability. Each character brings their own strengths and weaknesses. And I think that's a really fun formula for success. I like the witty slapstick humor, the kooky dialogue, the wacky characters, the sense that you're seeing something you shouldn't see as a kid. Mm -hmm. Like you got away with something your parents didn't know about, but it was right there in front of them. There's something cool and fun about that. But as mentioned, you can't overlook its faults, right? Those plethora of dead ends, that could create some confusion. And some of those puzzles just were not intuitive and you needed a huge helping hand to figure it out. But I would say, all of that aside, I love this game for its ambition, Mm -hmm. for what it gave to us, for its wackiness and its heart. And I think, Ben, I am a maniac for this game. (laughs) Oh, but um, so good. So Thank you so much for coming on this journey with this game. It is a bit of a cult classic. It's a bit of a hidden gem. If you haven't played these games or any of this stuff, but you are a fan of video games, I definitely encourage you to go check it out. Yeah. It's so cool. Please. I mean, this game on good old games and Steam, it's cheaper than a fast food value meal. You know, go download it if you you don't have it now. Play it and let us know what you think. Like, which combos of characters do you like? What puzzles drove you nuts? Um, let us or know. you can play the deluxe version for free. That's you right. You can go get it. It's it's shareware. It's free. So there's no real barrier uh, except maybe your time. Ooh. And speaking of time. Speaking of time. It is time for us <gasps> oh, yeah. to hear what we can expect on the next episode of 80s High Podcast. Oh, yeah. And only one man can tell us this. <laughs> we can assemble a team, but only one man has the solution. And that man... <laughs> Is Mr. Benjamin. <laughs> no, so good. Well, you know, th- there's a lot of things I had to weigh here to figure this one out. One, you know, the last topic I chose was a near and dear to my heart. And I got, I got, I think I was too close. I think it was too close. Uh, so I needed to step back. You know, sometimes on the show, I've done these like experiments where like, I know nothing about this topic, but it's big in the 80s. Sure. Let's go find it out together. Come on this journey with me, listener. Um, but I'm not doing that. But it's like, all right, I, gotta, I can't do another love letter. Okay. Okay. Uh, you know, I like variety and type of topics. Uh, yes. So I was sending something we haven't done recently. And then when this one struck me, I was like, oh, perfect. Okay. Chef kiss. Mwah. So I'm sitting here playing through a Maniac Mansion. And all I can think of that defines this game is spending hours looking for something. Hmm. I'm just staring at this screen and I'm moving from space to space and I'm looking over every inch and I'm starting to come up with systems. Like, I'm going to look left. I'm going to read this page like a book and what element it is out of place. Or I'm going to read it up and down, just scan the whole screen. I'm missing this one little thing that I need to be able to progress in this. And I was like, God, is there anything in this world as frustrating as what I'm doing right now? Is scanning this entire screen millimeter by millimeter looking for the solution? And I was like, my God, yes, Uh there is. 
I think I know. Someone on a stroll with a red and white striped long sleeve yes. shirt. <laughs> you can never quite figure out where he is. That's right, <sighs> ladies and gentlemen. Next time on 80s High, we're going to the beach. We're going to a spooky castle. We're going to a forest. We're going to a busy shopping mall in the search to help us figure out where's Waldo. You know, it took me a minute to catch on. As soon as you said scanning every inch, I was like, oh my God. <laughs> Oh my god! Which I, I where's Waldo? And so I had to Google it, and it is an '80s property. I had no idea Waldo comes from the '80s. I thought it would have been earlier. So did I. And we just knew it in the '80s because it was popular. He's very good at hiding. He's technically hidden in a game of Basilinda, but he doesn't really show up until the '80s. From the 1800s, sneaky, 1800s. sneaky guy. Well, this is fun. We've never done like a, a puzzle picture book kind of thing before. Right. This is really interesting. And I'm very curious to jump in a little bit more, learn about how it all came together. Excited to learn more about it. So find your spectacles, dust off your toque and grab your walking cane because we're going to go on a stroll across the pages of Where's Waldo. Next time on 80s High. <laughs> Thanks, everyone, for listening to 80s High Podcast by Ben and Chris. Our theme song is by Greg Reed at gregreedmusic.com with vocals by Chad Bumford. Show artwork is by Alex Goddard at alexgoddarddesign.com. If you like the show, please support us by passing a note to a friend in your next class. Also, you can rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts to help spread the rumor. Stay radical. Stay radical.